to have such a kind and generous Savior who blesses those who come to him and trust in him. Please turn to the Song of Solomon, to chapter 8. That's where we are in our study of the book of, uh, the, uh, called the Song of Solomon. We're nearing the end of this series. In this song, we have seen portrayed to us the relationship that Jesus Christ has with his church. The song portrays him as a husband who is ravished with his bride, who in turn is enraptured with her husband so that she melts in his arms of affection. After this book was written in the time of Solomon, it became a theme to which many of the apostles and prophets, as well as our own Lord Jesus Christ, spoke when they addressed his relationship with the church, the relationship of Christ and the church. Yes, Jesus frequently uses the marriage allegory. Many of his parables speak of his relationship with us as a marriage, often one that we're waiting to be consummated when he returns. We're betrothed to him now, and we're, the wedding day is coming. He has the parable of the virgins, you know, the, uh, the bridesmaids that are uh, going in and all, all of these things. It's very helpful in beautiful way, this, this picture of marriage is a very helpful and beautiful way to think about the church's relationship with Christ. The Song of Solomon has a kind of development in it. I haven't really mentioned this too much, but as we're getting near the end of it, we kind of look back over the scope, we can see how there's a development in it. It begins with the bride as a young bride. We were kind of introduced to that idea last week with the immaturity of her little sister, Well, she was really sort of the little sister at the beginning of the Song of Solomon. She was yearning for his kisses. You think of a new believer wanting him to manifest his love to her, for Christ to show his love. She is seen to be somewhat immature in her relationship with him. She's thrilled when she's brought into his house to hear his love for her. It's very fresh and special. She confesses that she is not... She has not tended to herself, her her vineyard, um, up until this time, as she ought to have. She's not sure where to find him. She doesn't know where where will I find him. And she's told that you'll find him feeding his flock. You can go and feed some of the little lambs and things there that need need milk and whatever. And uh, she's concerned that she might be, if she's wandering around looking for him, that she might be thought to be a loose woman. And he welcomes her, though, to come. She finds that as he feeds her at his table, then he's sitting at the table and she's there in the, in the place where this is going on. She finds that her love and affection for him increase and flow out profusely from her to him as she's feeding upon him. He expresses how he is pleased with her, He brings her into his banqueting house and sets a banner of love over her and embraces her affectionately in his arms. She is enraptured and tells her friends who are looking on, her young friends that are sort of checking everything out. Maybe they're they're even more new at that point than, than she is, that you don't want to rush this, like let this love grow and develop. She's beginning to get the wisdom. You don't want to take shortcuts of getting getting this, you want the real thing, don't, don't go after some uh, teacher that's going to tell you what you want to hear, 
like come to those who are bringing the word of God to you. We then saw how delighted she was when he was portrayed as a gazelle leaping across the mountains in order to get to her. No barrier in his way as he very agile, coming very quickly and eagerly to be with her. Kind of a springtime situation. The uh, birds are out, the trees are starting to blossom and he's coming glad springtime love and he invites her to come away and she's a bit uneasy and shy at first and uh but then there but then she goes away with him and uh with great delight and she wants him to keep on coming on these visitations to her that she might have communion with her lord but then there was a trial where for no apparent reason he seemed to withdraw so that she could not find him. And she hadn't done anything sinful as it recorded or anything that we know about. It was just a time of withdrawal, sort of a a bit of a a wilderness time for her. But soon he was back and embracing her again. Everyone began to notice the change in her and they saw her with him. They noticed the change of her being with him and uh, they saw that she was in his entourage Remember the palanquin that he had made, and she was being conveyed from out of the wilderness to his house. And we describe the fact that as the church of Jesus Christ, that's our situation now that we're being brought by him in care and protection with his entourage being brought from the wilderness to his house. That's what we're looking forward to, the great marriage at the last day. He told her how delightful she was to him and how he was ravished with just one look of her eyes at that time. And he described her as a, went on to describe her as a fruitful garden with precious spices. He loved to visit his garden and to partake of these these spices. But it was at this time, chapter five is where we are as we're flowing, flowing through this, that she gave him a cold reception, her love having grown grown cold toward him. Maybe she had gotten too familiar. Familiarity should never breed contempt with the Lord, but perhaps that was part of it, just a carnal security. And she was like, oh, I'm tired. I don't want to see him now. I don't want to be bothered right now. And we saw how he handled the situation. First appealing to her, and then rekindling her love, and then, maybe to our surprise a bit, withdrawing from her. Withdrawing from her for a time to teach her a lesson where she had shunned him, then then he pulled away. Did she ever learn a lesson from that? (laughs) We saw her going about in search of him, getting very eager, and very, in her separation from him, she realized that that she could not do without him. She could not bear to be without him. Now we saw that he was really with her the whole time, but he just wasn't manifesting his love to her. And so she, didn't, she wasn't aware of his presence. He wasn't making himself known. You know, it's like when you're reading the word, and you're praying and you just feel far away from God. You're not encouraged. You're not comforted. And she's bearing through this, but she keeps on without relenting, pursuing, pursuing, pursuing. She searches earnestly for him. Soon he could no longer resist when he saw her affection and love it drew him he had to go to her and so he went to her declaring again how pleased he was telling her that i couldn't stay away from you 
When I saw your affection, I delight in this, this affection that you have for me. And I, I, I just, I had to come to you. I was with you the whole time. But I, now I've come, you know, to, to, to manifest myself to you again. How warmly did she welcome him now? She was so glad. And she said, she told him later, come my beloved and uh, enjoy the fruits that I have laid up for you. I want you to be with me and enjoy what uh, the, the, the fruit that has come about through my relationship with you. Once again, she has noticed coming up from the wilderness of sin and death, leaning on her beloved. She has no desire to go anywhere else now. She has matured in her faith. She has become solid and firm in wanting to abide in Christ and to remain in him. In verse in chapter 8, verse 6 and 7, she expresses how glad she is that his love is so strong and so enduring. And in verses 8 through 9, she yearns for her little sister to experience what she is experiencing, this love, this relationship that she's experiencing. She looks at her little sister and she sees that you know she's not experiencing this. She, she's not mature. Her breasts have not grown She's one who is, can't tell whether she's a wall or a door at this point. She's uh, just new, starting out. And she's saying, what are we going to do for the little sister? So the song as a whole illustrates how Jesus takes his elect people who make up his bride. We've seen this, you know, the bride, one bride with many different members. And so he takes, how he takes this bride and brings her to maturity. In this way, he brings his bride, made up of many members, to maturity that she might be presented to him at the last day, when he returns in glory, as a bride without spot and blemish. We're told in the Bible several times that that's what he's doing. He's renewing his image in us. He's working in us. He's growing the church. It's a holy temple to the Lord. There's different pictures that are used. As individual members, then, we grow as individual members, from immaturity to maturity in ways that are shown in the song here. How he worked with her and she went from immaturity to maturity through the experiences like the ones that are described in the song. Sometimes him withdrawing, sometimes him coming near to us, sometimes very near to us. There's all different experiences that we have in the Christian life. All the while, when this is going on and we're, say we as an individual are being brought from immaturity, we're along the way coming toward greater maturity, then there's new people and the little sisters that are coming in and we see them that are just getting started and the whole cycle, if you want to call it a cycle, starts over again. He begins his work. He's constantly working in the bride and one generation after another, the bride comes along and there's new people, immature people, then ones that grow to maturity. He keeps on doing this. And the whole process overall is he's bringing the bride, which is one bride with many members, from immaturity to maturity. Filling her up so that all are brought in that are given to him. Some of them aren't even born yet. All that the Father has given him from before the foundation of the world that will be brought in are brought in. That's the work that is going on in the, uh, in the church, in the vineyard of the Lord. So what we have in our text today, Psalm of Solomon 8, 10 through 12, is the bride 
who has just expressed this interest in helping her little sister, what can we do for our little sister? Recognizing, dawning on her perhaps, that this is what happened to me. (laughs) The same thing that happened to my sister. And now I'm mature. And she recognizes that she's mature. And this is this is what, I, he's, what he just described, that we were going to do the plan to, to help the little sister, is what he did for me. And that's why I'm mature now, why my breasts are like towers and why I'm like a wall now. She has matured. She has done so because Jesus, her husband, as the text shows us to, that we're looking at today, is a wise husbandman. He knows how to grow his fruit in the vine in the vineyard and so she attributes her growth to him her maturity to him now more than ever she wants to give herself completely to him and we see that in these words too here i'll read them to you listen as i read our text for today again song of solomon chapter 8 verse 10 she says i am a wall and my breasts like towers Then I became in his eyes as one who found peace. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Hamon. He leased the vineyard to keepers. Everyone was to bring for its fruit a thousand silver coins. My own vineyard is before me. You, O Solomon, may have a thousand, and those who tend its fruit, two hundred. Thank the Lord for his precious word. May he use it to edify us today as we consider what is in this passage. We see here then, first of all, that we, in this passage, we declare that we, the church, have become a mature bride, verse 10, because Jesus, our husband, is a fruitful vine dresser to us, his vineyard, verse 11. Then verse 12, who has cultivated... cultivated, devoted love in us as his bride, so that we have a devoted love toward him. We're devoted to him. This is what we will be looking at today. So, so let's begin. In uh, verse 10, we, the bride of Christ, declare again that we have grown to maturity. I'll read it to you once more. Verse 10, I am a wall and my breasts like towers Then I became in his eyes as one who found peace. We see how much we have grown, how much we've matured. This recognition has come about, as I already expressed, from talking about the little sister. How are we going to help the little sister? He told us his plans for her. If she's a wall, I'm going to add, we will add to her to make her even stronger as a wall. That, so that she won't uh, let in false teaching or go after false doctrine or things like that, that she'll be strong and remain devoted to him. If she's a door, then we're going to board her up with cedar boards so that, so that she won't go out after false teachings and false gods. We realize that this is what he did for us, you see. That the reason that we're a wall now is because of his work. We were once immature like her, but now... He has brought about the change as he does from generation to generation. We note two major proofs of our maturity. First, that we are now a wall. I'm a wall. I've changed. 
At the beginning, I was unsure of this. I wasn't sure how am I going to follow Jesus? Am I going to? And, and over time, then that has become more solid. I'm not interested in other lovers. I'm not interested in false doctrines that look appealing. I remember when I was a new believer in the doctrine that maybe there was no eternal hell came along. I thought, wow, I kind of like that. And they had a bunch of scriptures to support it, you know, allegedly. And uh, I was looking at it. I wanted to, I wanted to believe that. But then I was like, well, no, that's not really true to the scripture. And, or, you know, over time, having to get, grow in doctrine and becoming more firm and settled in Jesus not tempted to run away when, when there's trouble, not tempted to say, well, maybe it would be better if I compromise here. No, there's a maturity that comes about as, we've, as we walk with the Lord over time. And then the second thing, so we're, we're now a wall, I'm a wall. She realizes that. The second thing, our breasts are like towers, not like the little sister who has no breasts so that we can give our love to our husband. We've seen that about the breasts of the bride as represented in the Song of Solomon, that you know, she expresses her love. The Bible talks about a husband being ravished with his wife's breasts and, uh, at all times. So to, to love, she, she's able to give her love to her husband because of the maturity that she has. And she's able to nourish his little ones with the breasts that she has to provide milk to them. It's very encouraging to look back as believers and to see how we have grown. You know, you look back, can you look back a a year ago? Have you grown? How about five years ago? How about 10 years ago? However long you've been a believer, has there been maturity and growth? That's God's work. And it's very special. And we should be able to mark that. Did you say, I'm not like I was before? There's so many things that have changed, so many things that I have been able to to learn, ways that I've been able to grow. And then we're not the only one that noticed the change. This is encouraging. Jesus also notices the change. He sees how we have matured. We have become, quote, in his eyes as one who has found peace. Peace. Shalom. Is the Hebrew word that's used there. It refers to wholeness. It refers to a fullness, a completeness. It's uh, peace is the blessing that is always promised to believers. It's rooted in many ways in the promise to Abraham when God simply said to him, I will bless you and in your seed all the families of the earth will be what? Blessed. How are we blessed? With peace with God. We're brought into harmony with God again. Shalom, fullness, completeness. It doesn't happen unless we're brought into reconciliation and harmony with God. That's what Jesus brings. So when Moses gave all of the service to the temple and all of that, and he was instructed by the Lord then to tell Aaron that this is how the priests are to bless the people when they come to worship God, How do you bless them? With peace. Put my name upon them that I am the one who will give them peace with me. They had all the sacrifices and stuff. So in Numbers 6.23, the Lord said, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. 
So they shall put my name on the children of Israel, and I will bless them. I will give them peace. In other words, the promise of Jesus is similar to that. In John 14, 27, he said to his disciples when he was going back to the Father, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And then we have the epistles. Many of the epistles, there are words such as grace and truth be multiplied. I mean, grace and peace be multiplied to you from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a very, very common thing that we run into that God blesses his people with peace through the gospel. And we cannot have this peace apart from Christ in the gospel. A subjective feeling of peace may, we may have for a temporary time, but it's not grounded on anything. It's not true peace. It's a feeling of peace we might have. That I remember a friend I talked to, and he said, oh, I have faith. He said, I believe everything will work out well. You know, that was his faith. He didn't have faith in Jesus Christ. He just had faith. And he thought that was sufficient and he was comfortable because he had faith. Oh, it was a false, empty comfort, wasn't it? And then objective peace, you see. Objective peace is only found through reconciliation with God, what Jesus came to do. The Bible says in Isaiah 48, 22, there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. This peace, what does it speak of? Well, it speaks of our settledness in him and in his house. When he looks at, uh, at his bride and he says, then, or she says that, that before him, then I became in his eyes as one who found peace. Okay, it's, I found a restedness in him. I settled in him as my husband. You see, I was comfortable being in him and with him, this is where I was committed and wanted to be. We're chased. We're not running after idols anymore. Happy in him. Trusting in him. No longer thinking when someone says, oh, well, did God say that? You say, yes, he did. <laughs> Instead of, oh, yeah, I guess he did. Well, maybe I should check this out. No, there's a rest of satisfaction with him that that we have entered. Hebrews 4 speaks about this. Verse 1, it says, Therefore, since a promise remains, now it's talking about that there was a promise of peace in the Old Testament when they were coming into the land. They were going to have harmony with God in the land if they followed and obeyed Him and, and came in and, and trusting in Him, leaning on Him. So it says, Therefore, now for us in the new covenant, since a promise remains of entering His rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. Because a lot of them did come short. They didn't go into the promised land. They refused to go in. He says, for indeed the gospel, the good news was preached to them as, to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest. So it's through faith in him where we, we, we come to trust him and we rest in him. And then we find rest. We find a place of, of, of shalom, of fullness, of wholeness in our Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter 3, spoken of as a settled trust. Now, what this is talking about is a wife with a disobedient husband. And it, before that, it talked about people with disobedient governing authorities and 
people with uh, other hardships with authorities. So in 1 Peter 3, 3, he says, do not let your adornment, speaking to a, a wife, do not let your adornment be merely outward. Don't just gussy yourself up outwardly, arranging the hair, wearing gold, and putting on fine apparel. No, there's something more than is needed in a godly wife. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart. Okay, what do we want to see in the hidden person of the heart? With an incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Notice all that, if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. So the, the wife that has a husband maybe that's not really doing right, and maybe he's disobedient to the Lord, as it talks about at the beginning of 1 Peter 3, how is she able, she's going to be uneasy because he's leading her, he's doing, making selfish and stupid decisions and things. She's all unsettled. Oh, what's going to happen to me? Oh, he's doing that again. Oh, what's going to... And she's, she, he, God says, no, you come and you rest in me. You find your restedness in me so that you're trusting me. And you know that everything's in my hands. And then when your husband's being foolish, then you can still honor him. You can still obey him and, unless he tells you to do something sinful. It's a whole nother whole nother way of living you see a, a gentle spirit not not all agitated but I'm, I'm settled in 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 my lord he loves to see you so he he delights to see us resting in him like that he says it's precious to him and when we are doing that we love to be so it's a great place to be where you're trusting the Lord. And like Psalm 46 talks about, you know, the mountains are cast into the sea around you. And you're like, I'm not moved. I'm in, I'm in God. I'm trusting in him. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. It, it, and uh, we love it that he loves to see us in that condition. <laughs> so he loves to see us in that condition. We love it when we're in that condition and we love it that he loves to see us in that condition, that he wants us to be in that condition. He wants us to trust him. It honors him for us to be happy and secure in him. You know, a wife that does have a godly husband, and she's always doubting him and questioning him, it's dishonoring him, isn't it? It's a tremendous blessing for us to be resting in his love and faithfulness. It's a place of comfort. We should aim for this in our earthly marriages as well, because they're to reflect Christ. Husbands are to be husbands in whom their wives can safely trust because they're not being selfish, because they are making decisions for the good of their house. Wives are to be devoted to their husbands and secure under their leadership, like we saw a minute ago, because they trust in the Lord, even if their husband isn't doing what's right. So they can do that even if their husband isn't. They can do their part. And we all need to exhibit this trust with the civil magistrate even with the ungodly ones. Who's, in, who's sovereign? Who's in control? Do I need to be all anxious and worked up about, oh no, oh no, what if this happens? What if they do this? What if they do that? No, I can trust. I can rest. I can, I can serve God. It doesn't matter. Go to prison. Kill me. Whatever. That's not the, I'm, I'm in him. I'm, I'm, I'm here for God. I'm here to do his will. So in verse 10, we declare that both we and Jesus recognize that we have matured. 
that we have come to this place where we're no longer unchaste like, or drawn away by every wind of doctrine and not sure and all of that sort of thing. We've come to a settledness, a peace that we are with him, a wholeness in our relationship with him. In verse 11, we attribute our growth to Jesus. To him is our faithful vine dresser. Verse 11 says, Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Haman. He leased the vineyard to keepers. Everyone was to bring for its fruit a thousand silver coins. Notice what we call him Solomon here. Shalomal. This name means Prince of Peace. As the Prince of Peace, he is the one who brought forth that peace that he says, that he sees is in us, that we just talked about in in the previous verse, that he sees that we have found that peace in verse 10. He is Shalomo, the Prince of Peace. We, his bride, are Shulamith, the Princess of Peace. So Shilamo married Shulamith, and therefore he's the Prince of Peace, we're the Princess of Peace. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 describes him as the author of peace. Where does the peace come from that we have? It comes from our husband. Okay? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. He's going to rule. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. There it is. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. No end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will will perform this. He's going to bring shalom to his church, to his people. He knows how to do that. To bring shalom to his people, he has to bring his people shalom. Like he can't just have a church that has peace. The people in it have to have peace. We grow to maturity and we come to this place that is being spoken of here. He brought us peace both objectively and subjectively, as we've referred to before, objectively by dying on the cross to take away our sins so that we were reconciled by him to the Father, by becoming our righteousness to represent us. And subjectively, how subjectively? By his ministry working in us over the course of our lives to bring us into that restedness in him, to make us secure in his love, showing his love to us. And as we walk with him, we become more and more sure of him. We become more and more comfortable and certain. We have seen in this book, as I reviewed it for you before, how he works in our lives with wisdom, bringing us through different trials and wilderness times, as well as mountaintop experiences to to bring us into a greater trust that we can safely trust him. It's how he works with each generation of his bride to bring her from immaturity to maturity. Notice how we speak of him as having a vineyard. Verse 11, Solomon had a vineyard. Now saying that he had it doesn't mean that he does not possess it now. It simply shows that he has had it for a considerable amount of time. And it's talking about it sort of in in retrospect, you might say. For example, I might say, when I was 16, I had a car. That doesn't mean I don't have a car now. 
It just means that I had one in the past. And it's uh, the tense used in the Hebrew can often refer to something that you had before that you still have now. In fact, it's translated, the very same verb is used in the same tense, so to speak, aspect in Hebrew. Uh, Isaiah 5.1 uses the same form when it says, it's the same theme too, my beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. Or you could translate it, had a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. Because again, it's the same construction exactly. Okay, so uh, both... Well, Isaiah 5.1 is quite parallel to this passage. I'm going to be referring to it a little bit more in a few minutes. But you see there in Isaiah 5.1, in here, in Song of Solomon 8.11, there, we, we find very often in Scripture that the vineyard represents the church. The church is called the vineyard of the Lord. And of course, the church is the bride of Christ. So we are a vineyard given to him by his father. We were given to him, his elect bride, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. In John 10, he calls us those who are given to him by the father, and he says he will bring everyone in to his house, into his kingdom. He tells us that he purchased us in John 10 by giving his life for us, by laying down his life for the sheep. We're bought with a price, we're told in Corinthians. And that he will preserve us and keep us as his own forever. There is an ownership. And with that ownership he has, as we've been given to him as his bride, he takes care of what he owns. He he prospers what he owns. He brings it from immaturity to maturity. He brings it from unrest and and, uh, distress to shalom. Our maturity, then, is the result of his faithful ministry as our husband, his husbandry, his skill as a vine dresser. So what does he do? Well, first, we see that he sets us in a very fruitful place. Baal Haman is where the vineyard is placed. That refers to fruitfulness. It means, the word Baal Haman means master or lord of a multitude or of many or an abundance. It's similar to the word Abraham when Abram's name was changed to Abraham, meaning father of a multitude. Uh, So like Isaiah 5.1, here's the parallel. My beloved had a vineyard where? On a very fruitful hill. Baal Haman place of abundance, where there's a lot of fruit. You might think of Psalm 1 as well. Where was the tree placed in Psalm 1? By the river. Why? So that it would bring forth fruit in its season. Second, he made sure of our care. He leased his vineyard out to vine dressers, keepers, as it says, Now, this speaks to the pastors and elders of the church that he gave to look after us. Jesus picks up on this in the parable that we read in Luke 20. Luke 20, verse 9, a certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to vine dressers, and went into a far country for a long time. He provided these keepers with ordinances to administer in his church. Okay, so these are the pastors and teachers and the elders in the church. 
And he gave them ordinances to administer for his people so that they would grow. He gave them the word of God to be read and preached, to feed them. He gave them the sacraments to mark them out and refresh them as his own people, mark them out as his people. You are mine, he would say in the sacraments. To discipline them, and to discipline to correct them, to pull the weeds and to, to steer them back in the right way. Prayer, to keep us leaning on him. It's a way that we show our faith. Prayer, faith cries out to him. And praise, to keep us honoring him and delighting in who he is and, and what he has done and give thanks to him. His goal in all this is what? If you have a vineyard, what's your objective? Fruitfulness. Most people don't plant a vineyard just so it will look nice. They plant a vineyard to get fruit. And that's what he, he wants us, the church, his vineyard, to become a beautiful, fruitful, devoted bride. That's what he's after. He wants maturity. He wants a high yield, much fruit. The Father is glorified that you bring forth much fruit. So see the last part of verse 11 in our text. He leased the vineyard to keepers. And the last part, everyone was to bring for its fruit a thousand silver coins. Isaiah 7 verse 3 tells us that when a vine brings a silver coin, a thousand vines bring forth a a revenue of of a thousand silver coins, that that's a fruitful vineyard. It's a healthy, fruitful vineyard. He expects to see his bride grow and mature to fullness, full fruitfulness from generation to generation. The same expectation of fruitfulness is seen in Isaiah 5 and in Luke 20 about the vineyard. Again, the church is the vineyard. In Isaiah 5, 2, it says, He dug it up and cleared out its stones, the very fruitful hill that he'd chosen, and planted it with the choicest vine. Of course, he saw in John 15 that he's the vine. <laughs> he built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes. But it brought forth wild grapes. Hmm, we'll have to talk about that in a minute. Okay, Luke 20, verse 10. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. He expected to find fruit. Uh-oh, again. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. In both cases, there were problems. Once with the vineyard itself, and the other time with the vine dressers. But these problems never prevented God's elect bride, his elect people who are his bride, from growing to full maturity. Never prevented them from doing that. Not once. The visible church is a mixture of wheat and tares, of elect and non-elect people. Jesus uses this mixture in a marvelous way to bring forth his elect bride is a faithful, fruitful bride. And he does this without ever erring. He always accomplishes his purpose of making her his elect bride. Not the whole church that's full of apostasy, but the elect bride, fruitful. Here in the Song of Solomon, we the bride testify that he has brought us 
to maturity. I am a wall. Back in verse 10. My breasts are like towers. I'm one who found peace. He has brought me from immaturity to maturity. It is because he is a fruitful vine dresser that we are a wall with breasts like towers. Our little sister will experience this. Then her little sister after her and her little sister after her until the Lord completes his bride and brings in the last one that he was given and we are all perfected in glory. In verse 12, we express our devoted love that he has been cultivating in us, promising, we express it by promising to give ourselves completely to him. That's what a devoted bride does, isn't it? When she is mature, what does she do? She gives herself, she pours herself out for her husband. The relationship has matured. Psalm Solomon 8, 12, my own vineyard, she says, is before me. You, O Solomon, may have a thousand, and those who tend its fruit, two hundred. We recognize with those words that our vineyard is our responsibility. We say, my own vineyard is before me. The language really emphasizes ownership in a big way, even more than it may appear at first. It could be translated, my vineyard is my own. It really doubles down on that. My, my vineyard is my own vineyard, and it is before me, my responsibility, mine to take care of, mine to do what I ought to do with. We all belong to Jesus, our husband. And of course, he is responsible for all of us, for the, for the whole bride. But we are responsible as individuals for the particular portion of the vineyard that he has given us responsibility for. And that can vary depending on your calling. For example, for me, the portion would be that I have been given, my, the place that I have been given is oversight of a congregation or two as a pastor. There are pastors and elders that are responsible together. The session is responsible to look after the flock. According to 1 Corinthians, that flock that they have been entrusted with, a portion of the vineyard, they're keepers of the vineyard. He said he, he appointed keepers of the vineyard to look after them. According to 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 4, the officers of the church are stewards of the mysteries of God who must give an account of their stewardship. So they dispense the word of God and the sacraments to the congregation. Paul certainly felt the weight of this responsibility as we read last week when he said, 2 Corinthians eleven two. For I have betrothed you to one husband. He said that to the people he'd won to Christ. I have betrothed you to one husband, not two or three husbands, to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. One who is not going after other lovers. But not all are ministers, are they? There. Are they? So your portion might be something else. Maybe you're a father and a husband. Those he has placed under your oversight then, you are responsible for, your household. Genesis 18, 19, we looked at it last week. For I have known him, God said of Abraham, in order that he may command his children and his household after him. Why? That they may keep the way of the Lord, 
that they might walk in the way of God from generation to generation. You've got to teach these little ones and bring them up. You've got to lead your household to God. See that they're continuing in the ordinance of God, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. But of course, you're not all fathers or or husbands, are you? So in every case, you're responsible for the vineyard, which is your own soul. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. We are to be diligent to bring forth fruit for Jesus Christ out of our own lives, out of the lives of those that we have been given responsibility for. We are to make diligent use of the means of grace to do that. Reading the Bible, the preaching of the word, the, uh, in the public ordinances, the, the sacraments, the discipline and correction, child correction in the home, all of these things, admonishment. We're to abound in worship and good works. We are to grow in grace and obedience out of an ever-increasing love for our Lord. Say to Jesus, my own vineyard is before me and it is for you. The vineyard that I have responsibility for is Lord Jesus for you. That's what the bride is saying here. As his bride, we then promise to give the fruits to him. Not like those wicked vine dressers that wanted the fruit for themselves and said, let's kill the sun so the vineyard will be ours and all of its produce. No, we gladly are for him now. He is our husband. He's the one who has saved us. We gladly say to him then, you, O Solomon, may have a thousand and those who tend its fruit, the fruit of the vineyard, 200. We bring forth more and more fruit by his grace and skillful husbandry as the one that looks after us. And all that fruit, you see, is for him. It's all to please him. We live to please him. That's the fruit that we're seeking, not some other lover. A thousand refers to a full load of it. It's the, the, it's all the fruit goes to him, a thousand. A thousand is used that way in the Bible, you know, a thousand year kingdom, all those kind of things it represents a full measure. This fruit also pleases his keepers. Okay, when we bring forth fruit, those who are godly ministers and elders are going to rejoice. The Bible says you're supposed to make them happy. You're also supposed to make your parents happy. If you have Christian parents, your parents are happy when you're serving the Lord. They're unhappy when you're not. If they're faithful Christian parents, you give 200 to them. It's not that 200 is taken out of the Lord's person and given. Everything goes to the Lord. But he has his keepers. And they rejoice too. And the Bible talks about that. It's important for us to realize that in serving the Lord, we serve those that are placed over us too as they lead us in the way of the Lord. Um, Hebrews 13 talks about that the elders shouldn't be miserable and look, giving oversight to you. It should be something that they can do with joy. So the church, think about how Paul, think about how glad he was when the people were, were bearing fruit. And I mentioned last week in, um, in John how that John said, I have no greater joy than to know that my children are walking in the truth. Parents can certainly say that about their biological children if they're Christians. 
So the Lord rebukes us when we give ourselves to other lovers. Because we're to be all for him. Thousand goes to him. We don't take it and say, I'm going to give this somewhere else. No, it all, it's all for him. In Ezekiel 16, you might want to turn there. He tells how he took us as his bride and provided for us to be fruitful and beautiful for him. And how we rebelled. We've looked at Ezekiel 16 before. I want to look at it now. It speaks to the visible church, which is a mixture of what? The wheat and the tares, the reprobate and the elect. He speaks first of how he found us in our sin and took us in with the purpose of making us into a fruitful bride. That's what we saw the vineyard is for, right? To make us fruitful, make us fruitful in him. So in verse 6 to 11, he talks about that. He says, when I passed by you, this is verse 6, again, Ezekiel 16, verse 6. When I passed by you and saw you struggling in your blood, you were defiled, you were, you were in your sin. I said to you, in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you, in your blood, live. I made you thrive. See, be fruitful like a plant in the field. And you grew, matured. And became very beautiful in his eyes. Notice this. Like the little sister. Your breasts were formed. Your hair grew. But you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and looked upon you. Indeed your time was the time of love. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes I swore an oath to you. Okay so here's the betrothal. I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you. And you became mine says the Lord God. Remember the bride saying, I am his and he is mine, that sort of thing. Then I washed you with water. Yes, I thoroughly washed off your blood. Okay, there's the cleansing that was represented in the Old Testament sacrifices. It's represented by baptism to us, the cleansing that Jesus gives. And I anointed you with oil, the Holy Spirit given to us. I clothed you with fine linen and covered you with silk. Takes the, he adorns us, he clothes us with a new life. You know, the, uh, we put off the old man and put on the new man that's renewed in his likeness. Clothed you with fine linen, covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments and so on. Keeps going, keeps going. Okay, in verse 13, he speaks of how attractive he made us and how we then, then in our, became proud and started going after other lovers. Again, this is the visible church, right? This is the wheat and the tares together. And sometimes the tares are so much dominant that the church is seen having to be sent into exile, having to be cast out. And that, that happens sometimes. Verse 13, thus you are adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen, silk and embroidered cloth. You ate pastry of fine flour, honey and oil. You were exceedingly beautiful and seceded to royalty. Your fame went out among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through my splendor, which I had bestowed on you, says the Lord God. But you trusted in your own beauty, played the harlot because of your fame, and poured out your harlotry on everyone passing by who would have it. King of Egypt, king of Assyria, king of Babylon, whoever it might be. You, you took some of your garments and adorned multicolored high places for yourself and played the harlot on them. Such things should not happen nor be. Serving Baal and Ashtoreth and various gods of the nations. In verse 20, he shows the extent 
of the church's, visible church's unfaithfulness to him. Think about when Jesus came, you know, they rejected Jesus himself. Think about before the exile, that's what this is talking about. Verse 20, moreover, you took your sons and your daughters whom you bore to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your acts of harlotry a small matter that you have slain my children and offered them up by casting them, by causing them to pass through the fire? And in all your abominations and acts of harlotry, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, struggling in your blood. Then it was so after all your wickedness. Woe, woe to you, says the Lord God. That is not what the elect bride does, at least not without repentance. The elect bride does not give herself to idols. Part of his wisdom as a vine dresser is seen, however, in putting us in the visible church that is this mixture with false brothers and sisters. He does that in his wisdom in order to put us in an environment where we will grow best. He uses this environment to bring out the best in those who are his chosen bride. That is the way he works. His elect bride is set in contrast to the adulterous woman who rejected his ministry. She grows up, the, the, bride, the elect bride grows up in maturity as his bride and gives herself completely to him. If you are his true bride, then you live to please him. That's what we saw. When we are perfected in glory, everything we do, we will do for him. We will live for nothing else but his glory. And it will be absolutely delightful to us to do so. It won't be like, oh, I've got to live for God's glory. I've got to serve God. I've got to go and serve God. No, no, it will be a delight to us. This is the fruitfulness that he requires You know what? God actually requires this fruitfulness of every single human being. He requires absolute, complete, total devotion to him from every single human being. And this is what he promises to bring forth in those who come to him for salvation and realize that they can't do this themselves in their fallen estate. He promises to bring us to that place where we will have that that true, right relationship with him is our God. Does that requirement seem unreasonable to you? How can God say, I want you to completely give yourself to me and live totally to please me? How can God say that without being selfish? Is he narcissistic? To say such a thing. A couple of weeks ago, last week, maybe a young woman told me that God seemed narcissistic to her for that reason. I told her that there could only be one reason that God seemed that way to her. Because she did not see him as God. Pretty simple. She was looking at the most high God as an equal to us, maybe, maybe even a superior to us, but still on the creature level rather than the creator who is blessed forever. For a mere creature, no matter how wonderful in advance that creature might be, to expect everyone to be entirely devoted to them, 
to their person and to live for their glory would indeed be reprehensible. For a creature to say, hate your father and mother because of your love for me, follow me and do everything that I tell that would be reprehensible for a creature to say such things. But to give the Most High God anything less than that, that is reprehensible itself. He is worthy of our complete and entire devotion. Let me illustrate this to you with a parable. A group of vile men find a lovely woman. They take her by force and they sexually abuse her, then beat her without mercy, leaving her half dead. There's actually an account like that in the book of Judges. She reports them to the authorities in her country and they look at her with disdain. They turn their lip and they say, who do you think you are? Why do you think those men should treat you any differently than that? You're just selfish. You're just narcissistic. You're just being, just, just thinking about yourself that you deserve this. You would tell those wretched authorities that that woman is a human being and that she deserves better than that because she's a fellow human being, that she it ought to be treated better, that she should not be treated that way. So likewise, if God is God, he ought to be respected as God. If a woman is a woman, she should be respected as a woman. If God is not treated as God, wrong has been done. If a person is not treated like a person, wrong has been done. If the woman were a a blow-up doll, wrong would be done before God, what the men did, but not to the doll. Because the doll is just a doll. But I say there's more difference between God and a woman than there is between a woman and a doll. God is the creator. We are the creature. We don't realize how great God is. We don't get it because we're fallen. Sin has blinded us. We miss the, the whole thing. God reveals that to us in the scriptures. It's the only place where you can find it. Other religions don't have a God that you can only be reconciled to through the blood of God's own, through God's own blood, through God's son coming and dying on the cross. They, they have a God that you can kind of appease and do stuff for and kind of work things out. And maybe you don't have to do anything at all. Or maybe he's just a force, an impersonal thing. But the true religion with the true God has a God that we have to be reconciled to. And you know, it's not just ignorance that we don't know God that way. It's culpable rebellion. We, we suppress the truth. What might be known of God, even just from the things He has made, His eternal power and divine nature, we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What, whenever anyone sees a manifestation of the true glory of God, that person is immediately consumed with guilt that cannot be shaken. They are overcome. They're overwhelmed. They realize how wretched they have been before the true and living God. When we're betrothed to Christ, when he first betrothes us, he shows us how we have sinned against the Most High God. Now, we haven't seen the full glory of God at that point, but he shows us enough of the glory of God that we realize I am undone. Like, I cannot, I'm so undone that I can't rectify this. I can't deal, I can't save myself. I'm guilty, I'm condemned. And we we don't see it fully yet, but we see it enough to realize 
that we cannot save ourselves, that we need a Savior to save us, that we need the Son of God to save us, the Son of God crucified to save us. Then we turn to Him for forgiveness, and we turn to Him to deliver us so that henceforth we might live for Him, for God, and we're never the same after. We're never the same when we're betrothed to Him. Now we're trusting in the true and living God to whom we can only be reconciled through Christ. We lean on Christ to bring us out of the wilderness of sin and condemnation. We can't bring ourselves out. The more we do so, the more delightful we find Him to be. As we lean on Him and we come along with Him and He brings us through all those situations that we talked about, the more rich and the more full our restored relationship grows and the more we long for the perfection of that relationship in glory. That becomes our settled hope. Yes, when we come to maturity, we say as Ephraim did in Hosea after departing from God and then being restored, what have I to do with idols anymore? I love that verse. We want to pour our lives out now for our dear Lord and Savior, our husband, and not for idols. Why would I serve an idol? We offer ourselves to the one that we love, to the one who has saved us, to our husband. We say, my own vineyard is before me. You, O Solomon, Prince of Peace, may have a thousand. Please stand and let's pray. O Lord, our God, we thank you for your salvation. It is such an incredible salvation that you would take sinners like us who have sinned in ways that go far beyond what we comprehend, that are far more reprehensible in your sight and in truth than what we have grasped. You take people like us and you redeem us and you offer full and free salvation to us, not salvation where we have to have a certain level of understanding, but salvation that is given to those who simply realize that they cannot save themselves and that they need the Son of God crucified to save them and that nothing else will do the, do the saving work, that we need, your, we need your work, Lord. We need your salvation. You as our husband, as our vine dresser, as our shepherd, as our Lord and master. Oh Lord, we pray that you would give us a settledness in Jesus Christ, a mature, settled peace, that you would give us, a, that, that we would abide in you, that we would be um, those who cling to you, Lord. And we pray that doing so, clinging to you to bring us out of the wilderness, that we would bring forth much fruit, that there would be a, a trust in you, that we would know we can safely trust you, that you're very kind and good to us, that we would no longer be anxious about the things of the world or the things all around us, that we would trust you, Lord, wholly and know that you're sovereign and that, that you will take care of us. And may we also, Lord, find a greater obedience to you, a joy and doing your will and living in the way that you have called us to live more fully, more completely. Father, we pray that we would worship you, that we would delight in you, 
that we would praise your holy name and that more and more our praises would grow richer and fuller as we learn of you and walk with you. Pray, Father, that we would give all that we are to you, that we would live to please you in every way. For, Lord, that is what you desire, that is what you require, and that is what you bring about in your bride. We're not there yet. We won't be there in this life. But we praise you, O Lord, that we will be there in the day when Jesus comes back and we appear with him in glory. We see him and we will become like him. You have predestined us to be conformed to the image of your son. Lord, what can separate us from such love? Nothing. We praise you for the hope that we have. May we spread the gospel to those who do not know you, the good news of our hope. Father, make us grow. Cause the fruit in us to abound as we abide in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive now the blessing of the Lord. And remember that if you do receive this blessing, then affirm with a covenantal amen. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.